everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined again by Terry Fakes for a second round with the Book of Revelation. Into the abyss once again. (laughs) So in the last episode, part one, last week's episode on the Book of Revelation, we were setting the table a little bit for what we're going to talk about today. But I didn't want to get too far into this without going back and just hitting a couple of the pivotal things that you need to know at the beginning of the Book of Revelation. So there's two big things to know if you're opening up the book of Revelation or if you're just listening to this podcast that we covered last week. And the first one is, what is the book of Revelation? So Revelation has a outsized impact and it has an outsized reputation. I, I think, I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Origin or somebody that said, you know, there's no monster so uh, crazy in the book of Revelation as many of the commentators. And uh, that <laughs> certainly well is true. You can find the wildest things in people talking about the book of Revelation, not just in the book of Revelation itself. So it's it's important to know from the get-go, what, what are we even looking for here? What is the book of Revelation? And there's three things that we covered last time. The first thing is it's a revealing. That's what Revelation really means. It, the Greek word is apocalypse, where we get the English word apocalypse. And that really means an uncovering or a revealing of something. In fact, we don't use the word revelation in the Bible this way, but we use it in our everyday speech to mean something that dawned on you, something that became clear. That's what revelation is. It's an uncovering of things in the past, present, and future. We can argue about which things are past, present, and future, but of the scope of history, past, present, and future, which goes against worldly wisdom. So in some ways, what you're seeing in the book of Revelation is this is that. That's what these visions are doing, is uncovering what it really is. Oh, this looks wonderful. Actually, it's a beast. Oh, this looks eternal. Actually, it's coming to an end. Yes, and one of the ways I like to think about uh, revelation, revealing, is this is something that if God hadn't told us, we would not have seen or been able to figure out on our own. Hence, the idea of it is being revealed from God. Yeah, and hence the fact that he has told us, and a lot of people still are arguing you know, about what, what it <laughs> still is. Still don't understand. Yeah. So we definitely wouldn't have got it without the book, uh, but we are struggling to get it sometimes with the book. The second thing that we talked about is this is a canonical capstone. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you really need to understand the rest of the Bible. You really need to know where to go, where John is seeing these visions and where these visions have been seen before. And we don't have time to get into this, but a really interesting question in Revelation is how much is John actively using old uh, prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature to describe what he's experiencing? And these are kind of the little commentary sections where he's editorializing what he's seeing versus what substance of these visions is the same vision that somebody like Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah saw. And so there's both of those going on, but you've got to know both the original visions and how John is reporting them and using them, how Jesus is talking about them to understand Revelation. Here's an interesting stat. Of the 404 verses in Revelation, 348 of them have references to the Old Testament. And of those 350-ish references, they refer back to 250 Old Testament passages. So there's a huge spread of how Revelation uses the Old Testament. And then the third thing, and this is really one to keep in mind, depending on what interpretive family you're from in the book of Revelation is, it is a message for the church then and the church now. So the book opens with seven letters to seven churches, which we discussed a little bit last time. These letters are real letters to real churches, and they have a meaning that is bigger than that, but they also don't have a meaning that's less than that. So these churches had to have been instructed by the book of Revelation. Then the fact that it's in the Bible means it's useful for us now. We have to interpret it in such a way that works in both contexts. So it can't be that it meant nothing then. It only means things about events today. And we also can't think it meant everything then, and we're just looking back at it as as a historical artifact. It's applicable in both contexts. So with those three things, the second thing uh, I wanted to just recap really quickly is these four views that we've been talking through. These are lenses, frameworks in order to interpret the book, and there's a lot of different variations of these, but these four main views Well, as you begin chapter four, after the letters to the seven churches, which is where I think we'll pick up, you get a long section 
at least to chapter 16, that is commonly called the tribulation. And it is very apocalyptic language, very symbolic language that is describing visions John has seen for things that are have happened, are happening, are going to happen. And that that depends on your point of view. But all of the things that are happening, these judgments that are coming from chapter four on, people have struggled to understand what do they mean. But the biggest question, here's how I find it most helpful to understand the approaches to Revelation. And all of these are valid approaches. I'm not telling you they're all correct. I'm just telling you that they're all valid in the sense that they accept the authority of the text and their sincere attempts to understand what is Revelation telling us. And I think the easiest way to understand these four views is them answering the question, when are these things going to happen? When are the events described in chapter four and following, when are they going to happen? We know John saw the visions in the first century, but when are the events he's describing going to happen? Well, if you think they happened really early in history, like perhaps around the fall of the temple in 70 AD, and I'm simplifying this a little bit, basically, if you think they've already happened, the label for that point of view is preterist, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. And that simply is a word that describes the idea that most of what's happening here has been fulfilled, has actually occurred in history, and that there are then lessons for us. The second point of view says, no, all of these things haven't happened yet. In fact, chapter four on, these events that it's describing have been scattered all throughout the history of the church and are still occurring today. It's almost like a roadmap, if you will, of church history. And so it's called a historicist view, meaning these events have happened, are happening, and some of them have yet to happen in history. The third view says, no, actually, chapter four on is describing a very specific period of time right before the end of the world. And most futurists, in other words, it's going to happen in the future, would say that these things are happening in a seven-year period called a tribulation, called a tribulation because the things that are happening are, are such trials, and that this is all really happening in the future, and we haven't gotten there yet. And then the fourth point of view is symbolic or spiritual or idealist, various uh, labels for it. But what it basically says is that's the wrong question. These events really did happen, but they have happened. They are happening and they will happen. In effect, these are more cyclical truths that come true over and over and over. And as we go through this a little bit, we'll try to connect some ideas to the various approaches to the book of Revelation. I'll just put in a word for a, a principle that runs underneath at least three of these, uh, three of these four views. The, the futurist is a little bit different, but certain different versions of historicist, preterist, and idealist all encompass or can encompass uh, what's called progressive parallelism or the recapitulation view. So we talked about this last time as a literary view you have seven visions at, with an intro and a conclusion. In the middle, you have seven visions that are essentially covering the same period of time or at least the same phenomena. So if you have the beginning of time being basically the ascension and the end being the final judgment, you have seven visions of that time period, but they're, they're getting closer to the end as they recapitulate each other. And we'll see why that's an appealing view for preterists, for historicist in some ways, and certainly for the idealists who think that these are all talking about a general span over the history of the world, principles for the church and um, basic things that God is doing throughout history as we go. Uh, the easiest way to see this is when we start to break down the outline of this book, there are some things that seem very similar that are happening over and over again. And right. uh, different views are going to handle this differently. But just remember that a lot of people have looked at these and thought, well, this, this pattern is starting to emerge. And patterns are one of the best ways to read the book of Revelation. Um, patterns that are the same and then where you've seen a pattern and now it's deviating. That's a really good thing to take note of as to while you're reading. Exactly. By the way, before you launch into the structure of this, it might be worth a short 
a very short explanation of some of the numbers in Revelation. Apocalyptic literature in general is very symbolic, and certain symbols mean certain things. And some of them transcend the, the different books. And, and here's what I mean. For example, we've talked about the number seven quite a bit. And one of the principles that you should look for is numbers sometimes have symbolic meaning. In other words, they enhance the meaning of what's happening. So, for example, the number four, where you see it, usually refers to something earthly, something that's in the created realm, creatures, creation, earth. I mean, think about the old saying of uh, the ancients used to think that all of creation was made of earth fire, water, and air, you know, four elements. There are the four directions, north, south, east, and west. In other words, that number four over time has kind of been understood to be an earthly number. The number three has been understood to be a divine number to referring to the heavenly realms. I mean, think about the Trinity and that number has thought to be a, a number that refers to divinity. So when you put those two things together, you have seven. Seven is then the number of totality. It's earthly and heavenly. It's created and creator. So seven comes to be a number of completeness or wholeness. So when Cole spoke a minute ago about having seven visions, that's a, an interesting number because it means these visions give you the totality and the wholeness of God's revelation. Yeah, and we're going to see combos of these numbers. You know, if you combine them, they mean certain things. Of course, 144,000 is a big number in the mm -hmm. book of Revelation. That's, you know, 12 times 12 times 1,000. Those are all significant numbers. Of course, you have a 3 times 4 in there. These are significant um, roots of these numbers. Of course, 666, which we won't spend any time on. Uh, but, but that's a big one from the book of Revelation. Some people think it's 616, depending on how you read that and what manuscript evidence you look at, but pay attention to the numbers as much as you pay attention to the symbols, because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of interesting interpretive clues that come by looking at these numbers. So let's break down some of the big overview of the book. We talked last time about dividing the book according to the visions that John has. So there are four times that you see John say, and I had a vision in the spirit or in the spirit I saw. The first time you see that is in chapter one, verse nine. There he's on Patmos and behold, coming on the clouds, every eye will see him. He's the alpha and the omega. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom uh, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, and all of a sudden we're into the first vision. This happens again at the beginning of chapter 4, it happens at the beginning of chapter 17, and it happens at the beginning of chapter 21. And this is a, a nice way to divide some of these visions. Of course, there are further divisions. There's a pretty clean break at the end of chapter 16, and we'll talk about why maybe 17 through 19 should go in the previous section, or maybe it should go with the section afterwards. But these are pretty clean, big breaks that you can tell the book is um, shifting in some way or another. After the opening vision in uh, the end of chapter one, you get the seven letters to the seven churches. This is in chapters two and three. We talked touched on those briefly last time. And then in chapter four, the book shifts. And this is the main vision of the book of Revelation or the main set of visions in the book of Revelation. And in verse one, it says, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, so this is a call back to what he had heard in chapter one, verse 10, a voice mm -hmm. like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you must, what must take place after this, after this is a big phrase in Revelation. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. So you see that phrase in the spirit, we're in a new vision, a new sequence of visions, and it's a throne room in heaven. And this is a really famous scene that begins this long vision. John goes up and he sees the throne room of God. This is going to remind you of Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah is called and he sees the throne, he sees the train uh, and God's glory filling the temple. We get a picture of the heavenly temple and a heavenly worship service. In fact, there are a lot of people who look at the book of Revelation and see liturgical worship 
themes and um, liturgies through the entire book. And I think that those are really helpful in reading across the book. But I think here it's really especially interesting because what right. you have is a worship service. You get the descriptions of the people there. So you have uh, the the creatures that have the different faces and the wings and everything that you've seen from the book of Ezekiel who are surrounding the throne. You get the 24 elders who are there. You have a sea of glass that's there. You have a big throne. But what you also have is worship happening. So there's a lot of hymns and a lot of singing in the book of Revelation. And when it comes time at the end of chapter four, in a regular worship service, there would be a time of singing, there would be a liturgy, and then there would be somebody who's going to read the scripture. And essentially what you have is a moment where the scripture needs to be read and you have a scroll, but nobody can break the seals. Again, this is one of the most famous parts of this vision is who can break the seals and no one in heaven or on earth. This is in chapter five, verse three was able to break it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found to open the scroll. Well, one of the elders says, weep no more for the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is a reintroduction of Jesus into the book of Revelation. We've seen Jesus before in the opening vision in chapter one, we got a description here. We're going to see Jesus again, but now we're going to see him as the lion of Judah who shows up as a slain lamb a different description than we saw in chapter one and a different one than we're going to see in chapter 20 and a different one that we're going to see at the end as well. Uh, these are the different facets of who Jesus is and what he's doing in this story. And so Jesus is the one who's going to open the scroll and break the seals. He's the only one worthy. And as they say in verse nine, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, it says later, to receive power and health and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's just an amazing opening to this vision to have this worship service in the heavenly throne room. So the first two chapters of this vision suck us up into a worship service in heaven. That's a great way to look at these two chapters. And uh, although I've been looking and reading this for years and I can't find where the host announcements are done in this worship service. But <laughs> other than that, it looks like a liturgical service. I just want to point out a couple of things in this vision. And just this is a great way to think about the sim symbolism and the way this kind of apocalyptic vision works. When it describes Jesus, how do you know this is Jesus? I mean, if you think about it, what did Jesus, what did John actually see? Did he see a literally a lamb that looked like it had been slain, which had seven horns and seven eyes? Well, I don't know. Or did he see Jesus? I, I don't actually know the answer. I do know that this is a way of telling you this is Jesus because it's a lamb that had been slain. So obviously our Passover lamb, that's Jesus. Seven horns means Seven, remember completeness, and horns are power, strength, all power, and seven eyes. Eyes are knowledge, all eyes. Omnipotent and omniscient and a lamb who has been slain. And so that vision, I, I don't, don't get caught up too much in what did he actually see? What did that lamb look like? Was it a baby lamb? Was it a big lamb? The point is, he's telling you this is Jesus through those symbols. Another interesting point with numbers is in verse 9. Cole, you read this where it said, worthy are you to take the scroll, speaking of Jesus, and to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God. If you had any doubt this was Jesus, you don't now. But listen to how many uh, adjectives there are from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Four. In other words, you redeemed the world. And then a little later, uh, the many angels numbering thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive, now listen to how many, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Seven adjectives. In other words, you came to, to ransom creation, and now all seven, all glory and all power is given to you. So that's an illustration of getting the ideas out of Revelation through the symbols in Revelation. Uh, that's a right. particularly easy and helpful way to look at it. I'm glad you pointed that out because those are the kinds of things, when we say clues, we mean, what is this saying? 
not just what do the words mean, but what is it actually saying? What is it pointing our attention to? Sometimes we think about Revelation as clues being, what does it point to in our world today? And we'll discuss some of the ways that people have interpreted that later. But what I mean by clues is literary clues. What What's drawing our attention? What's most important here? What are we supposed to be right. seeing? And if there's a theme of these first two chapters, and really this runs through all of the book of Revelation, is what are the people and creatures doing in the throne room of God? They are worshiping. They are giving glory to God. They are giving glory right. to the Lamb. It's going to start out worshiping. It's going to end worshiping. John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, on the Lord's day morning in the beginning. This is happening on the day that we worship God. And one of the principles is, no matter what camp you're in on interpreting this, one of the principles is God is going to be worshiped from now all through eternity, no matter what happens, no matter what his enemies do, no matter what the devil does, God is going to be worshiped by his people. That's one of the threads that runs all the way through. And the reason we know that is not just because it shows up so many times, but because all of the emphatic points in these opening two chapters point to that conclusion. This is the perfect lamb. He is opening the seal, which is the word of God. It's the plan of God for history. And the people that are there that, that are encompassing kind of all of creation are praising him and giving him glory. And they're going to do the same thing in the very end as well. So as you can see, we could dive down, you know, a thousand feet into this passage, but just from an overview, this is really rich with application for today. And not just what we think is happening today, what is true about today. God is being worshiped, whether it's contemporaneous in terms of the framework or not, time, right. timeline wise, uh, God is going to be worshiped for all of history. So another thing that's going to happen throughout all of history or throughout this period of tribulation in the book of Revelation is there are going to be judgments. So there's worship. And then immediately when we open the seals, when the lamb opens the seals, what we start to see is judgment. And you probably just having either read Revelation before or even having heard about it, recognize the big sets of three that are going to follow all the way from chapter six through the end of chapter 16. We have seven seals that open. That's in chapter six through the beginning of eight. We have seven trumpets that are blown, which is eight, six through 11, 19. Then we have a little bit of a interluding section, which we'll talk about. And in chapter 15, verse seven, you have seven bowls that are being poured out of the wrath of God all the way through the end of chapter 16. So you have three consecutive sets of seven. Seals, trumpets, bowls. Let's take each one of them and just look at a, a little bit. We're not going to be able to get too in-depth, but there are some really important patterns about what's happening here. Maybe from a just a 30,000-foot view, what are we? What should we make of these three sets of seven? You know, the, the standard way of understanding it, just through the numbers, and this is my view as well, is that while God has judged his people, he has judged nations before in history. So, for example, when we were doing the minor prophets and God would speak about he's going to bring judgment on the Assyrians or on the Babylonians or whatever it may be, he has had many judgments in history. But the fact that you have three sets means this is God's divine judgment. And the fact that they each have seven, you get the sense of completeness. This is God's final and complete disposition of his creation. Uh, is the way I would, I would read this is this is whenever you think it happens, whether you think it's already happened, it's in process or it'll happen in the future. What John is seeing is God's final dispensation uh, his final judgment of creation. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. This is a uh, series of judgments, or it's three descriptions of the same perfect judgment. Either way, it is a different level or a different kind of judgment than what we read about in some of the other places in the Bible. It very much matches the places like the Olivet Discourse or uh, places where we see catastrophic um what we would call apocalyptic, uh, which gets its name from here, types of judgment. And the, the reason for that is we are starting to look at the final things. And the book of Revelation is constantly talking about the final things. But one thing you have to keep in mind is Paul, especially, seems to think that we are in the final days starting right after the ascension of Christ, that this is the final time. 
And uh, this is one of the problems with interpreting Revelation is what does the final things mean? What does the last things mean? What does things right. yet to come mean if you're in the year 70, you're in the year 30, you're in the year 2022? But regardless of what you think time-wise, there is a finality to this judgment. And one of the things that you see if you start to study these sets of seven is they often uh, parallel things like the plagues of the Exodus or judgments that you see in the prophets. Um, There's language like the skies going dark and the moon turning to blood and earthquakes and hailstones and lightning. This is decreation kind of language. Just like if you listen to our Exodus podcast, we talked about the plagues are decreating Egypt, their judgment on the gods of Egypt, but they are also a decreation of the world that Egypt has made. That's the same thing here. God created in the beginning in seven days and in seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. He is decreating the physical world uh, towards his final goal of the new Jerusalem. Exactly. This might be a good place, by the way, just to mention the the views, because they are earnest attempts to understand what's happening. So if you read the Apostle Paul and you think, yes, he's right, he sees what the, the book of Revelation, these events, as having begun at the resurrection. Well, if you are a historicist, that's exactly what you think. You think it began then and it will end at the second coming. If you're a symbolic or idealist point of view, you think that Yes, these things have been happening over and over and over since the resurrection. And so I simply want to point out that when you see things like that, it helps to understand why people might have different views on the book of Revelation. Right. Is they are earnestly trying to figure out the clues to say when when are these things happening? I really like your point, Cole, about uh, and I'm I'm more and more drawn to the idea that the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls are the same event being recapitulated, being retold. Now, if you're a futurist and you think this is all happening in seven years, you want to read this a little more in a linear fashion. You know, you've got seven uh, seals and bad things happening. Then you've got seven trumpets and even more bad things happen, etc. But there's enough parallelism here that you can certainly read it as three tellings of the same tale, if you will. Right. There are some interesting patterns here if we dive into the sets of seven. In the seven seals, but what you have is the scroll being opened. And when the scroll is opened, when these seals that are on this scroll are cut open, so think like a wax signet ring seal, when they are Mm -hmm. opened, something happens. And inside each seal, and it's almost like a consecutive unrolling of this scroll, things happen. So right at the beginning, when he opens the, you know, when he opens the first seal, you see these riders come out a white horse who has a bow and a crown. He's coming to conquer. And people are going to argue about whether this is the same white horse and rider that we see later, or if this is a different one, if these horses are good or if they're bad, they're definitely judgment, but they're being released from God's scroll. So are they good or bad? And these are the kinds of questions that are really fun to debate. Second seal, same thing. You have another horse. And so you've got these horses coming out and they're going to do things to the earth. They're going to go out and conquer or pestilence or plague or death. And in each one of these, I want to point out a pattern. In each one of these sets, you have things basically go sequentially until you get to the sixth one. So in verse mm-hmm. 17, uh, for example, or, or in verse 12 through 17, you get the sixth seal open. Then you have an intervening set of things happen before you get to the seventh. And this happens in every single one of these. So within the sixth seal being broken, you have all the way from chapter seven uh, to the beginning of chapter eight of everything kind of happening within the sixth seal, because the seventh seal doesn't open until chapter eight, verse one. So in the intervening time, you have the 144,000 who are being sealed. That's in seven, one through eight. And you have martyrs who are coming out of the great tribulation in seven, nine through 17. Now, I want to say a word here about what the futurist view is doing in interpreting each of these. Within the futurist view, you have three divisions on when they think the church is going to be taken or when the rapture is going to happen. And that would be pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. 
And among those three views, there's a lot, you know, in favor of each of those. But basically, they're trying to decide when do God's people leave earth and go to heaven and wait for the final coming of Christ and the judgment. And so pre-mid post means somewhere in this seven years of tribulation, the church is actually going to be taken and the church is not going to go through the tribulation. This is one of those passages that is easy to read in that framework because in the middle of the sixth seal being open, which is tribulation judgment on the earth, all of a sudden you've got 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe who are being marked, who are being taken, who are coming out of the tribulation into heaven. And so in the second half of chapter seven, he says, who are these clothed in white robes and where are they coming from? And I said to him, sir, you know, And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. A lot of times we think of these as martyrs. Uh, You can think of this as the church who's being taken in the middle of the tribulation. Um, There's a lot of other pointers to this kind of thinking. I just wanted to stop on this one because it's pretty easy to see why you might think, okay, midway through or six sevenths of the way through, Mm -hmm. we've got the church coming out, the faithful people who have been washed in the blood of the lamb, they're being taken out of the tribulation. And then the seventh seal is opened. Great point. And uh, I did want to add one other clue here. Whenever you see clothes in apocalyptic literature, but certainly in the book of Revelation, it has to do with uh, more than character, but righteousness. So for example, when you see dirty clothes, then you have an unrighteous person. So Cole, you just read in verse 13 of chapter seven, it says, uh, these people clothed in white robes, where did they come from? And it said, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What's he talking about here? It has nothing to do with the clothes they're wearing. What he's saying is these are martyrs, Christians. These are people who have been washed by the blood of the lamb, And so they're now righteous because of Christ. And Mm -hmm. so they're described as having white robes. Right. And so dirty clothes is not righteous and naked is as bad as it gets. Mm -hmm. And so I I just want to point out these little clues will help you understand as Cole, Cole, as you said, what is it really trying to say? It's really not trying to tell you what their attire is. It's really trying to say something about who they, who these people are. Right. Exactly. And this is the way the symbolism works. A lot of times is it's telling us by something that John is seeing what is true about these people and what's true about the world. So let me put in a word for the recapitulation view here. Um, If you look at the end of chapter seven, verse 17, the lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If you've read Revelation, you realize that that phrase is going to show up again at the very end in the new heavens and the new earth, new Jerusalem. This is going to happen. People with the recapitulation view or seven visions view are thinking, this sure sounds like the very end or pretty close to it, and we're about to the seventh seal. Is this just going to happen over and over and over again? Or is it talking about the same thing happening from different angles? And so you can see how even in this chapter, just these few verses, why there's so much disagreement about when these things might take place. But back to the overall framework for a second. So we've got six seals, and then we have an intervening time where you have 144,000 people in the church, martyrs coming out of the tribulation. Then you have the seventh seal, and something always happens at the end of these sevens. The seventh is always a little bit different. So in this first one on the seven seals, you get silence in heaven for half an hour. This is a one that's puzzled commentators as to what's really going on here. And then you have the trumpets. So the seventh seal is opened, and on the inside or sequentially or going back to the beginning, we have trumpets being blown. The trumpets are blown in order all the way to the sixth trumpet which takes place in chapter 9, verse 13. This is judgment. Uh, Again, similar kinds of things happening. And all of a sudden, at the end of chapter 9, verse 13, you have something different happen. We don't go straight to the seventh trumpet. Instead, we have this vision of an angel and a little scroll, which is a great vision. And right Mm -hmm. after that, we have the two witnesses, which is another really interesting vision. And if you're not reading this uh, sequentially at all, What you're doing is you're saying there's something similar between these 144,000 who have been sealed, or there's something in this intervening time that's similar between the angel and the little scroll, the word of God, 
something about these two witnesses, maybe the witness of the church, maybe this is Moses and Elijah. You know, there's a lot of guesses as to what's going on here that happens before the end. And I, I think of all the places in the book, I'll point out one other section. Chapters 10 and 11 make it very difficult to fit Revelation into any really clean framework. Because right. every time you think you've got a pattern that just works for the whole book, you have something that's just a little out of place. And these two visions are really out of place if you want to see a very nice, neat, sevenfold vision through the book of Revelation. Um, and there's one other place like that, I think. But, but let's spend a moment on these. In chapter 10, he sees a mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face is like the sun. His legs are like pillars of fire. So we've seen this before in chapter one, in part. And he has a little scroll in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice. And when he called out, seven thunders sounded. Thunder is very significant. I'll come back to this when we get uh, into chapter 15. Thunder is very significant as a transition in the book of Revelation. And so he seals up what the seven thunders have said. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. He's taking an oath, basically. Um, that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. There's a finality coming in the seventh trumpet. And uh, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So there's a lot there. But what I want to what I want to point to is this is a word of God that's been given through this character. And what John does with it is interesting. He takes the scroll that's open and uh, when he goes and he takes it, he eats it and it makes your stomach bitter but in your mouth, it's sweet as honey. Well, this is something we see the prophets doing in uh, the Old Testament. This is the part where right. the narrative really shifts. We're about halfway through right now. It really shifts from John being an observer to John being a participator, from John being a recorder to John being a writer. And so the word comes inside of him. He, in some ways, this is his prophetic calling in the book of Revelation because it looks very similar to what we see somebody like Jeremiah or Daniel doing in these other books. And now right. he's going to take a much bigger role in playing out the things that are going to happen. Uh, the other thing is it's a, it's an endorsement of John's own writing that this is an implicit way of saying this book is not just John making up a bunch of stuff. This is the outpouring of God putting his word into his prophet, John and giving it to us. So these, these visions are good in and of themselves to teach us certain things about God and about what we're reading but then it also goes in the flow of the narrative. That's a good point, Cole, about uh, this is validating God's word. This scroll idea shows up in Ezekiel chapter two, and Ezekiel's given a scroll to eat. And it uh, also has a bitter message. You know, the sweetness is often understood as God's word is always sweet, and the source of it is God, the source of goodness. But the message is a message of judgment, and it's a bitter message in his stomach. But that's a really good point is that it's validating that John is simply a prophet who is passing on, thus saith the Lord. Right. And then he's going to show us what it means to look like a prophet, what it means to do exactly what you just said, speak the word of the Lord in chapter 11. And let me point out another, another little literary clue in chapter 11. He takes a measuring rod. This is exactly like the end of the book of mm -hmm. Ezekiel where Ezekiel right. goes and he measures the temple. Only holy things are measured in the Bible. Uh, so you'll see things like the temple or the heavenly temple being measured in the Bible, given precise units, precise distances. Those are usually holy things. In fact, you can realize this just from this text because he's supposed to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is for the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses who are about to see, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So the, these are again, pretty significant numbers, this 42 months and 1260 days being half a tribulation. So uh, right. we, we see this being a, a, kind of a code that's used through Revelation to be half of these sevens. And uh, we see it in months, we see it in days, we see it in times, times and a half, times. Uh, right. But this is just another way of figuring these numbers into the framework we're using to 
interpret. Now, let me say one thing about these witnesses. This is one of the cool stories that can just stand alone in the book of Revelation. You get these two witnesses who are in the midst of an evil city. They are speaking their testimony. They are confronting the powers that be. They're previewing in some ways the beast that rises. Again, this is a big passage for the recapitulation view. And then they are killed and their dead bodies lie in the streets of that great city that is symbolically or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Okay, this is getting wacky with trying to sort this out. And this is another interesting theme. For three and a half days, here's three and a half again. Some some from the people of tribes and language and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And eventually God is going to breathe life back into them. They're going to stand on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. This kind of sounds like the resurrection. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here, which kind of sounds like chapter four. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched. So there's all kinds of stuff packed into this. What do you take as kind of the main takeaway, either just individually or in the scope of the book from this scene of the two witnesses? Yes, good point. First of all, the uh, futurist view, thinking that this is a tribulation of seven years, makes sense. Seven, the final uh, judgment of God. And the 42 months, which is three and a half years, 1,260 days, which is three and a half years by the Jewish calendar, had 360 day years. And time, times, and half a time, a year, two years, and half a year. This three and a half is, you're right, we're about in the middle of this period of tribulation. And futurists will call the first part the tribulation. And the second three and a half years is the great tribulation, because believe it or not, things get worse. But right here at the basically the midpoint, you see God's, and I won't talk about the uh, witnesses as to who they are, but I love the symbolism that you just read in verse eight. They're standing in the city, which where their Lord was crucified. So we're in Jerusalem. And however, which symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. And the idea of the nations coming to battle against God's people. So Sodom was a place of great sin. Egypt was a place of captivity and foreign gods. And so they are in a place that is enslaved by evil and foreign gods. And so they come right into the heart of Satan's uh, area and they begin to testify. And it looks like, and this is true for Christians of all ages, they get killed. And it looks like Satan has won, but God resurrects them. That was true of Jesus. And I believe it's, uh, Cole, my read on this is it's very encouraging. And I think Christians were encouraged throughout persecution and all of history to say, and just as he did it for Jesus, he will do it for us. We too Mm -hmm. will be raised. Yeah, the witness of the church may not triumph uh, in a way that meets our eye, but it will triumph in the end. And that's a perennial message. Uh, you know, these two are very similar to the people who go into Sodom. And uh, right. w- when you see the story in Genesis, it's very similar to that story uh, as well. So there's a lot of biblical themes here about God speaking his word to people to repent, people not hearing his word and killing them, but God raising his people from the dead, uh, raising Christ from the dead and raising us from the dead as well. If you So this is all in the middle of the sixth and seventh trumpet. When the seventh trumpet is blown, that's in chapter 11, verse 14, uh, or in verse 15. The second woe passes in verse 14, which we'll come back to, and the seventh angel blows his trumpet in verse 15, and then you have worshiping happening. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This, again, is going to sound like Sounds something like you end. see yeah. later in chapters 19 and 20 and 21. The nations rage, but God... Um, preserves his word and his servants. And then something really curious happens in chapter 11, verse 19, the ending, like I said, of each of these sevens, something kind of surprising happens. At the end of the seals, we had silence for half an hour. At the end of the trumpets, we have God's temple in heaven being opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake, and heavy hail. And now we're going to transition into what I think is probably the hardest section to deal with in terms of the organization of this book. And the reason we know it's a new section is because we've got this temple opening, we've got the Ark of the Covenant, we have this marker of thunder, 
we know we're about to see something different. Well, I was going to ask you, Cole, what uh, you said earlier that you would talk about thunder and that it's significant, but this lightning and thunder, we've seen it several times. So is this a good time to say, what is that signifying? What does that mean when you see thunder and lightning? So all through the, all, all through the book, you're going to see big peals of thunder and lightning. You're going to see hailstones. And effectively what you have is the heavens, you know, the little H heavens, collapsing down on to the earth. And this is going to get worse and worse and worse. In fact, at the end of the trumpets, you have this scene. And then at the end of this middle section in chapter 15, verse five, uh, which is before we get to the bowls, we're actually going to have an opening of the tent of witness. And this, this to me is kind of an unresolved problem. I don't really know what I think about this, why you go from a temple at the end of uh, chapter 11 to the ten of witness, which really should be before the heavenly temple, the temple. Uh, although it's mm-hmm. modeled after the temple uh, in chapter fifteen, and uh, again you see all this thunder, you see uh, God's power, you see smoke from the glory of God, you see the sanctuary uh, being closed. Anyway, this is where the plagues end up coming out from. So it's not just a transition. Again, we're going back to this judgment as decreation. The earth is literally falling apart. And one of the things that thunder and lightning and hail all symbolize is the earth is getting very unstable. And the physical created order is coming crumbling down. And we're going to see at the end that it does collapse into the new, when, when the new Jerusalem comes down later in the book. So what's up with uh, coming in verse or chapter 12, this woman and a dragon. So in this interlude, if you will, at the seventh, seventh trumpet, you get a sign appears in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars. She's pregnant. She's getting ready to give birth. And then comes a red dragon and he's got, you know, seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems, uh, What's what's going on in this interlude? This is that second part, like I said, that I think is very difficult to put into anybody's framework or outline. The outline just gets very complicated when you try and figure in the scenes in chapters 10 and 11. Then you have this seventh trumpet, which really is the center of the book in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you don't start the bowls for another several chapters. So in chapter 12, all the way through chapter 14, you do get some of the more famous visions in the book of Revelation. These are some of the most famous images. But when are these images and what's happening? Maybe the the most straightforward sequential way to read is you've had part of the tribulation happen, and now you're taking things up to the next level before the bowls happen. And so these things are actually just happening after the trumpets. For anybody that doesn't have a futurist or a sequential view of, of this happening, it's hard to place this section, 12 through 14, in a recapitulation because where does this occur in the recapitulation? The easiest way to do this is if you say a great sign appeared in heaven, there are three great signs that occur right here all together. And uh, it goes back to the very beginning. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She's pregnant, crying out, and there's a dragon who is going to eat the child. So this could be the very beginning of humanity. Most people take this to mean Mary, as in the people of Israel, who's giving birth to a Messiah, who is going to be taken by the enemy. We can see Egypt themes going on here, but it's hard to fit into any kind of outline um, what 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 exactly this is referring to and when this takes place. What do you think? Well, I think it's, I agree with you completely. And I'd like to read 12 and 13 because I'm not a linear reader of Revelation. I don't insist that chapter 12 happens after chapter 11 and chapter 14 happens afterwards chronologically. Now I realize some of the views are, but I don't, I think 12 and 13 is, is you just pause and you're going to talk about Satan for a little bit. 
and it's going to set up some more events. It's sort of like, okay, hold that thought. Now I want to talk to you a little bit about Satan and what's going on. Satan is the dragon. Everywhere you see a dragon, a serpent, you know, whether it's in the garden or whether it's in the book of Revelation, that's Satan. I read uh, this as kind of giving you a biography of Satan. And so you have him sweeping down a third of the stars of heaven in verse four. Many people think that that's talking about when Satan was cast out of heaven, he and his angels, that's where you're going to hear a third of the angels in heaven rebelled with him, that his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. Now, I don't know that that's true, but here you have Satan uh, coming out of heaven. You get Satan pursuing this woman. And if you think that she's Israel, and I do, because later it says in verse five, she gave birth to a male child who's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And that's just as as much a messianic language as you can get. But he wasn't. She, the child was caught up to God and to his throne. And however you understand that, whether it's the, them fleeing to Egypt for to per, keep Jesus from Herod killing the babies, or whether you think it's the resurrection, that Satan can't hold Jesus, however you want to look at it. I see this as Satan in the beginning rebels against God. Satan tries to thwart the plan of redemption by killing the Messiah who is coming out of Egypt, uh, or out of Israel, excuse me, literally. And then... We move on into chapter 13, and it tells you Satan is going to set up his own unholy trinity. You're going to see these two beasts that come to serve the dragon. And so whether you have the Father, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit, you're going to now have the dragon who wants to be God. You're going to see an antichrist, and you're going to see a false spirit, a false prophet. So I'll stop there and let you talk a little more about this, but I, I see 12 and 13 as sort of a, hey, let's focus on Satan and let me give you a little bio of him. Yeah, I think that's the that's the easiest way to read this. And if that's the case, then we're basically going back to the beginning. The The difficulty here, and, and this is only a difficulty for certain readings, because uh, some of this is going to be fulfilled in multiple ways, in increasing right. ways, maybe over time. We've talked about this in the prophetic books before. Some of this is hard because if this is the case about Satan, you got to go back to the very beginning. And I just want to say that a lot of people think, when you think about the fall of Satan, most people think that happened before creation. Satan has already fallen. I would challenge that to look at this text and others in Genesis and in Ezekiel to say that maybe the fall of Satan actually happens because is a direct result of the fall of humanity in Genesis that actually part of part of the serpent being there was not as part of the rebellion but as giving rise to the rebellion in when you look at Psalm 8 for example humanity was created a little lower than the angels to rise up and rule in in a place higher than the angels and there's a i think there's a pretty persuasive argument to be made that what satan was supposed to be doing was training and guiding and helping humanity learn. And what he did do was he wanted to be in the place of humans. So he corrupted them and then he's thrown down. That's one way to read those passages. And if that's the case, this passage makes a lot more sense time-wise to talk about the beginning of creation, humanity, what Adam was supposed to be, Satan is thrown down. Of course, we know that this is fulfilled in an even greater sense with Jesus, who is the one who truly comes as the son to defeat Satan and to rule with a rod of iron. Exactly. Cole, I think that's spot on. I will say that my understanding of this doesn't preclude other understandings of it, but I think this is a, a good way to understand it. But what you just said I, I agree with this. I think that Satan's job originally was to shepherd humanity, and instead he corrupted humanity And because his plan is, I want to be God. And I will say, for those that are familiar with the book of Enoch, this is the approach that the book of Enoch takes. When it talks about the angels that serve Satan, it talks about how they corrupted humanity, uh, who they were supposed to be serving. But they mm -hmm. rebelled because they were unwilling to do so. Now, the book of Enoch is right. not inspired. Nevertheless, that is a that is an idea that goes very far back in Jewish mm -hmm. thinking. Yeah, and you'll see hints of this in passages of the Bible that are very similar to the book of Enoch, which is like the book of Jude, for example, or right. the book of Second Peter. 
may have some dependence or they may just be talking about the same thing. Uh, but a great resource on this, actually, this is a wild book in a lot of ways, but some really great insights is called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. Uh, if you right. come across that book, it, there's some really interesting stuff about this dimension of what is happening outside of just the human story, looking at the cosmic story that God is telling through the Bible. So you get to 13, and this is where things really get interesting. This is what everybody wants to talk about is, tell me who these beasts are. So walk us through these beasts and... Uh, a couple of the things that happen in 13 and 14 shape up for what's going to be the final stretch of this tribulation phase. Right. Well, as far as the beasts themselves, just to make it very simple, a beast rising out of the sea, typically uh, a clue from the sea means it's going to be a political entity in some kind. And so this is going to be the Antichrist who you're going to see portrayed as a ruler uh, a leader of the nations, someone that brings the kings of the earth together to serve the dragon and his purposes. And so you'll see that he has 10 horns, which is a lot of earthly strength. He's going to end up with power. 10 diadems, that's sort of a diadem is like an earthly king getting rule. And so he's going to have 10 again, being a Think about 10 fingers, 10 toes, very human number. And so he's going to have power and authority in the human realm. So he is the Antichrist, and he's going to exercise his authority, verse 5 says, for 42 months. Now we're talking about the second half of the tribulation, the second three and a half years. The second beast is coming out of the earth. And this is a, a clue that this is more of a spiritual entity. And listen to his description. He had two little horns like a lamb. The lamb makes you think of God and Christ. So he looked like Christ, but he spoke like the dragon. Mm. So he's a false spiritual entity. He's a false prophet. And uh, so you, you see Jesus, or you see say, Satan wants to be God. And so now he's got his antithesis of Christ, his antichrist, who's going to rule on his stead on earth. And then he's got his false Holy Spirit that is going to look like a servant of God, but he's going to speak the message of Satan. So you see here, Satan's little unholy trinity is about to get serious uh, about enslaving humanity in right. the next three and a half years. And one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to give his mark so this is the mark yes. of the beast. One, probably one of the most famous things from the book of Revelation, even just culturally, from people that have never read Revelation, this mark of the beast is really taken on. And, you know, every now and then you get an, another guess as to what the mark of the beast might be. I'm trying to think, you know, there are several iterations of this that people have, have decided on. And then there are some key things in the text about this mark. Of course, it's an economic thing. You know, they can't buy and sell right. unless they have it. Uh, like I said, 666 is what the ESV says, but there's a note here, some manuscripts, 616. I think Dan Wallace has written an article saying it should be 616. That's more consistent. Uh, but that would just throw off all of the cultural uh, 666. Built, people have built whole publishing empires on 666. I don't think we can afford to change it now. <laughs> right. So anyway, we'll have time to maybe get into this and some of the millennial kinds of questions and things after we do the overview, um, maybe in a, a final installation of this. But just for right now, before we move on to kind of the final phase, what should we take away or what are kind of the baselines for you on this mark of the beast and the beast's influence overall? What's basically happening is Satan is now taking control of his kingdom of humanity. This is his big moment, if you will. And so his Antichrist, the beast, is going to mark all of his people. You remember earlier that God marked the 144,000 faithful people. Now Satan's going to mark his people with the mark of the beast. And he is persecuting God's people. And he is, this is his moment. Like, yes. I started in the garden and I corrupted Adam and Eve and look at me now. I am in charge of all of the earth and I've got my little trinity and I am just like God. Unfortunately, while he's in his high moment, the continued decreation of God's judgment is going on all around him. 
it's sort of like the statement of Satan is reigning in a kingdom that is crumbling all around him because God is judging him. If you think back to the Exodus for a minute, remember Pharaoh, God kept judging him and he's still, oh, I'm the king, I'm in charge. And even his advisors at one point came to him and said, don't you see that Egypt is destroyed? Well, that's that's how I see, Cole, what's happening here. This is Satan's great moment. And it's literally in the midst of God shutting this whole thing down. Right, right. That's a that's a great theme to take from those beasts. There's a lot to get lost in, but I think that's the overarching thing that's being said here. In chapter 14, you get the lamb and the 144,000 making their appearance again. So we saw these, if you remember, in between the sixth and seventh seal. This is in chapter seven. Mm-hmm. And those are marked. They're identified 12,000 from every tribe. And then now on Mount Zion, again, we're we're still in we're still in Jerusalem here. Uh, on Mount Zion, the Lamb stands with him 144,000 who has his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. They are marked. Think about this. We think of 144,000 as a big number, but consider for a minute the census that we have in the book of Numbers, which we did a few weeks ago. In the beginning of the book of Numbers leaving or kind of headed out into the journey to the promised land, you have, I think, 604,000 Israelites. And then afterwards, you end up with a a number maybe around 601,000. So comparatively, this is a very small number, even for Israel, much less for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So this is actually supposed to say the whole earth is being reigned over by these beasts, and everybody has the mark. That's a lot of people. And then you have this very small number of people, uh, a unique, interesting number, 144,000, who actually have not given themselves over to the beast. They've been marked by the lamb, and they learn a song. This is is a cool little thing in verse 3. They were singing a new song before the throne, and no one could learn that song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. In fact, we don't actually hear what this song is in this book. We hear a song of Moses later. But we actually don't know what this song is because you got to be there to know it. Those are the only people that can ever know it. So the only thing I know for sure is Charles Wesley probably wrote it. Probably so, honestly. He's one of those. And he's leading the singing. So you get to the end of this, you get a harvest from the earth, you get praise for God. And then finally, we get down to chapter 15, where there's worship to God again. The glass, sea of glass is now mingled with fire. Things are getting very intense and the seven bowls of God's wrath begin to be poured out. And so we get our third set of seven. And let me just recap this before we bring this section to a close. What we've been saying is in these three sets of seven, there's a pattern, and it's important that we understand what's going on in each of these. You get all the bowls being poured out. In chapter 16, verse 12, you get the sixth angel pouring out his bowl in the great river Euphrates. And these plagues are getting much worse. And in between that and verse 17, where you get the seventh, there's not as dramatic a pause as you get with the, with the seals and the trumpets. But notice, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, for they are demonic spirits performing signs, going abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. So the, the intervening time, things are being ratcheted up. The influence of this unholy trinity is getting bigger. People are being deceived, and we are preparing for the final battle. And so when the bowls come to a close, curtain closes in at the end of chapter 17, great hailstones, 100 pound each, fall from heaven, earthquake. There's a city that's being split into three pieces, and uh, they're falling on the people, and the people are cursing God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Now, this brings to a close this big section, which basically has these three sets of seven with these two interluding sections where you've got the scroll and the witnesses, and then you've got Satan and the beasts. Seals, trumpets, bowls, now we're setting the stage for final judgment, depending on how you read this, but certainly the most ultimate judgment, which is going to come in these next few chapters, and then you get the millennium and the vision on the mountain, which we will cover in our subsequent 
uh, installment, part three of the book of Revelation. But I want to stop here so we can just comment for a moment on the end of this tribulation section or this end of the three sets of seven judgments right. from God. What do you take at this point in the book? If this really is a closing part of a vision and we see another vision beginning in chapter 17, what's the takeaway from this section? Well, I think there are many. I'll give you one that just jumps out at me because I see the Exodus motif running through this. Uh, and I, I think that's why the Exodus happened, was so we can understand this. But basically, you have the the those who rebel against God. Remember Pharaoh? Remember what he said when Moses said, let my people go? He said, I do not know your God, and I will not let these people go. And here's Satan who said, I will not serve you, God, and I will enslave these people. And so. I, I really do see this as equivalent to the idea of Pharaoh thinks he's in charge, but the judgments of God demonstrated very clearly that Pharaoh and his gods were not really in charge. And I see a similar idea here. And I guess you could call it God's sovereignty. Uh, Satan wants to be sovereign, but he's not. And the rebels will be judged, and God is the one who's actually wielding the power. So that mm -hmm. would be probably my big takeaway. What about you? Yeah, similarly, I think the message of deliverance, even in the midst of this judgment and decreation of the world, is really powerful. In these intervening mm -hmm. scenes each time, whether it's the seals where you have people being marked and these people who have white robes being coming out of the right. tribulation and singing and worshiping God um, in the section with the trumpets in the intervening time, you have these witnesses who've been raised up from preaching God's word and being killed. And they have been brought back to life in the bowls at the, at the end or uh, right before the bowls, particularly you get these people who are singing the song of Moses and they are praising God, and they are coming out of the tribulation. And this description is just awesome. Um, out of the sanctuary, seven angels clothed in bright linen. One of the four creatures gave the seven angels bowls of fury. And the sanctuary is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one can enter until the seven plagues have finished. God is delivering his people in each one of these. And uh, we're going to see that in a big way, obviously, towards the end of the book again. But there is so much worship in the midst of so much tribulation, so much judgment, so much of God bringing glory and preserving his people while he is bringing judgment on those who have rebelled against him. It's this really stark dichotomy of the difference between people that are trusting in God and people that are not trusting in God and how they are enduring and where they end up and what they're doing when they end up there that characterizes this section of the book. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.